part of a joke. It's part of a joke. We'll give a couple people a couple minutes. Um, you have missed so many classes, but it's okay. It's not too late. He's a prospective student. Okay. Well, in that case, you in that case you're actually ahead of the game. Um, did, did you get in, or are you junior? No, he's he's still waiting to get back. I think. Okay. When are you supposed to hear? Oh, April first. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, fingers crossed. Um, the joke is uh, the chief rabbi dies and goes to heaven, and um, God greets him and takes him around and shows him stuff. And um, they go by a trap door, and the chief rabbi says, What's in there? And God opens it up, and there are people celebrating and having a really wonderful time. And God says, That's hell. And the chief rabbi says, Okay. Um, but they seem to be banqueting, and God says, yeah, they're, they're just having a really great time um, and just, have, just having a wonderful banquet down there. So the chief rabbi says, okay, and then they wander around heaven some more, and there's just, um, it's really pretty and everything, but there's no one there. Um, and every day the chief rabbi opens a trap door, and the party seems to be getting more and more wild and wonderful. Um, not every day, every time he passes the trapdoor. So then it gets to be um, dinner time, and God says, well, we should eat too. So the chief rabbi is really looking forward to the banquet. I mean, given what's in hell, he's really looking forward to the banquet in heaven. And then God brings out some chicken salad sandwiches in saran wrap. And the chief rabbi, that, that would be the reference. And the chief rabbi says, um, you get chicken salad sandwiches in heaven? And they're banqueting in hell, and God said, well, I, I could have made something nice, but I figured with just the two of us, why bother? <laughs> Sorry? It doesn't pay to cook for two. Yes, it doesn't pay to cook for two. Um, I heard that joke in Flatbush. I heard that joke in the Uh-huh, yeah. It was the only funny one I remember. It's the only funny one your rabbi ever said? You need a new rabbi. Um, the joke I first heard when I got to Brandeis, Alan Grossman, who taught here at the time, told me, which is there's a flood, and the rabbi is protecting the Torah, and the water is going up and up. And um, the rabbi is, is gone to the second floor of the synagogue, and someone comes by a window in a boat. You know this one? And says, uh, I, I think it's an ecumenical one, but I heard it as a rabbi. Um, and the rabbi says, no, God will protect me. I don't need your boat. And then he gets on the roof, and another boat comes by, and he says, no, 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 I'm protecting the tar. God will protect me. I don't need your boat. And then he gets to the very um, peak top of the roof as the water rises, and another boat comes by, and he says, no, 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 God is testing me, but he will protect me. And then he dies. He drowns, goes to heaven says to God, what did you do? It's very embarrassing. I was saying you would protect me and that you wouldn't let this happen. It doesn't look good, doesn't look good for my memory. It doesn't look good for you. Why did you do this? God says to him, I sent three boats. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a good introduction to Herbert because he's not, um, he's not a poet who makes a lot of jokes. Um, but um, I hope you liked him. Um, I think he's uh, really pretty amazing, and um, he is, uh, his mother was a good friend of Dunn's, 
and um, he is, and, and um, he's about 20 years younger than Dunn, 21 years younger. Um, but Dunn admired his poetry when he was young. And he writes in, we've already looked at um, one of his poems, Love Three, which, remember, we compared to um, They Flee From Me. But he writes in um, the metaphysical mode, that is the um, extremely well um, thought out, well um, explored um, uh, exposition of a metaphysical conceit. And um, at his most grotesque, he gives Dunn a run for his money. Um, I told you about the poem, which is not in here, called The Bag. Um, and um, But he also is, of all the metaphysical poets, he may be the one um, who writes with just the most delicacy of touch, um, even more than done at his most delicate. Um, and so it's, it's worth, uh, even if what he's saying at first doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that you would find interesting as a subject for poetry, um, and it may, but it may not, um, what he's really writing about is human experience. What he's really writing about is um, the kinds of experience that whose only explanation um, that makes sense is that they would be sent by God. Um, that is to say, therefore, the kind of experiences that um, may not seem to make sense um, as something that we are prone to or pray to, but nevertheless the kind of experiences that we all have. Experiences of grief, experiences of affliction, experiences of uncertainty, experiences of despair, um, experiences of love, which is good, but experiences of um, anxiety, of the precariousness of life, all those things. And for him, he explores those things because exploring them is for him, um, he's an Anglican priest, and a serious one in ways that um, we don't know for sure that Herrick was, and that it seems um, in a lot of ways Skelton was, but in ways different <laughs> from the way Herbert is. Um, but he uh, explores these things, all these human experiences, well, partly out of, out of a pastoral sense of what his um, congregation is experiencing. He's really, really good um, at knowing what what problems and what the feeling of the problems that people who come to him for help, um, what 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 it is they need help with, um, what it is that um, will put them into trouble um, of one sort or another, emotional, mental, um, soulful trouble. And he's good at understanding that because he's good at analyzing it in himself. And um, the depth of self-analysis in Herbert is um, really extraordinary. Is it deeper than Shakespeare? Probably not. Um, but he's maybe analyzing a self that's somewhat more familiar than Shakespeare. Um, when Shakespeare analyzes himself, as he does in the sonnets, a lot of what we get out of that is a sense, which it's otherwise very hard to get from Shakespeare, of just um, how different Shakespeare is from all of us. Um, 
how um, whatever makes him Shakespeare makes him not like us. Um, he creates characters, an amazing number of characters who are recognizable, um, but Shakespeare is not, um, doesn't seem like a whole lot of those characters. Um, whereas with Herbert, and I also think, eh, to some extent with Dunn and the Holy Sonnets, and certainly with Wyatt, um, you get, a, and not with Sidney, I mean, not at all with someone like Astrophel, um, you get a sense of really penetrating modern psychological self-examination. Um, Sidney's or Astrophel's self-examinations are intentionally artful. Um, there's something about them which, while revelatory, is also um, self-protective. Um, Astrophel really isn't Sidney, um, and therefore that allows Sidney to um, have Astrophel say things um, that he doesn't have to go very deeply into, whereas if he were talking about himself, he would. Herrick may go very deeply into himself, but he's a much, that's a much more cheerful self to go into. Um, Herrick's than Herbert's, Herrick's than Wyatt's. And um, what, you, what is, um, I think, most helpful um, when you're in trouble of reading someone like Herbert or reading someone like Wyatt is um, the thing that made Herbert um, helpful to his parishioners, um, that uh, a real, deep, humane, and human knowledge of um, human experience. And for him, that human experience was a sign of God's existence um, because it was something that brings human beings to God. We could start by looking at the poem called The Pulley, which um, essentially says just that. Um, and that is, actually I lost the page it's on, so now I will find it. Um, 331. 331, thank you. Um, I wonder if we should do both the collar and the pulley. They're, they're actually together in the original book. Um, yeah, let's start with the pulley. Uh, someone want to read it? Well, I'm sorry, what, what is your name? Oh, uh, James. James, would you read it? Um, See, that was really shrewd on my part. That would be great. <laughs> Thank you, James. Um, when God at first made man, having a glass of blessing stand, standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie. That, that little accent on the E means pronounce the E, dispersed. Dispersed lie. Contract into span. Yeah, that should, that's a typo. It should be contract into a span. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay. Perceiving that alone of all his treasure rests in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the god of nature. So both should be losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them repining. With the, repining. With repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least 
if God's goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. Thank you. Um, thanks very much. So, see, you're, you have, now you have a second leg up if you end up coming here. Um, okay, what do you all think of that? What do we, what do we think of that? Anything strike you right off? Yeah. The, the use of the metaphor of like glass for blessings and with human men, because it's typically dust or earth that God blows into men, not a cup of cupful of blessings before. Right. So a glass of blessings, that's that's an interesting and odd idea. Um, what does it what does it suggest? Why that metaphor? Just, just free associate on it. Why a glass of blessings? Think about why I started out with that little joke about the chicken salad. Here, look, look at it again. When God had first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by. Huh. Say more. Okay. Uh huh. Um, okay. Um, you don't actually, I'm pretty sure, drink out of glasses in biblical times. Um, there is glass, but it's so expensive and so hard to make that it tends to be used for storage, um, which is what what is happening here, or for um, jewelry. Yeah. A glass is hollow and it's made to receive things versus ashes, which when you think of ashes, you think of them like in a pile, which is a little more dense. And like the glass itself is made so that it is it, to contain something versus ashes. And you can see what's in a glass yeah. versus okay. ashes. Yeah, good. Good. I think that's there. Um, yeah. Well, I guess you can see yourself um, uh, like in a mirror. Uh huh. Um, man made in God's image. Yeah, good. Those blessings are just that. Yeah, so in fact, there probably is some hint of glass's mirror, glass's looking glass. Um, it's not, I don't think, the primary uh, meaning, but it's there because the blessings that God has would be what um, is also within him. So he would look into a glass of blessing. Or he would look into a glass and it would be filled with blessings. And if you put it that way, it's not clear whether we're talking about a glass as a container or a glass as a mirror. Now, I think it's mainly a container. Um, what, may, what would be the indication that it's mainly a container? He's taking things out of it. Yeah. Um, he's taking things out of it. What about just in that one line, a glass of blessings standing by? It's like you had a choice of which things to confer on man and which to leave in the glass. Yeah, but just if all, if all that survived of this poem were the fragment, the fragmentary line, having a glass of blessings standing by, what would that line make you think that the glass of blessings was a receptacle or a looking glass? Yeah. 
tell a cup more because that's kind of the way we use to describe cups like a glass of wine, a glass of whatever we're drinking, so a glass of blessings. Yeah. Um, what if it was the glass of Erised? Which is not quite what J.K. Rowling says, but still. Yeah. Is it because when you think of someone standing by, you think of someone waiting on you, and therefore it would be a glass, like, in, as in, like, water when you go to a restaurant, there's always supposed to be a waiter that's, like, ready to refill your glass, so he's, like, just waiting. Okay. By. Yeah, but it's, it's, um, it's the glass itself that's standing by. Um, maybe it's just uh, one of those things where, where the idiom has changed enough that... Um, that it's not quite natural for you, but there's something casual about standing by. The line is, so he made man, and essentially then he noticed that there was this glass of blessings there. So, in other words, it's not, it would be different if, if when God at first made man, having um, made sure to have a glass of blessings there, let us, said he, pour on on him all we can. That is, look at, the, look at what's essentially um, a psychological um, chain of reasons. That is, so God did something. He made man. Um, and then, wait, I have this class of blessings. Happens to be right here, he says. And why don't we pour on him all we can? Since, I mean, since it's here, nobody's using it. Um, you know, having an extra glass of wine, he decided to down it before um, going to bed. Um, so, is that can that come into focus for you? Is that um, so? It's here's God doing something. He made man. Fine. Then he notices he has a glass of blessing standing by. So he says, "Hey, that's good. I could do something with that." What does he do with it? Yeah. Um, but if it were a looking glass, it wouldn't be something he could just pour out. There's something. It's the casualness that's really striking of that formulation. Um, why that casual formulation? Why is it that God would, as the poem does, just happen to notice a glass of blessings like that? You know, just think of, of, of uh, being at someone's, you know, being at a small party on, on some Saturday night, and then you notice that there's a bottle of seltzer in the kitchen. So you think, eh, I could have a seltzer. I could go for that, or a Coke or whatever. Um, it's that kind of casualness that you have here. Um, so in what kinds of situation, in what kinds of worlds, would there just be glasses of blessings happen happening to be standing on the kitchen counter next to the chicken salad? Heaven. Well, heaven, like, like exactly. A perfect, a perfect place that all of these good things are just are so bountiful that they can just, you can just use it. Exactly, it bountiful. It's, it's a place, it's like when you go to a party um, and you don't have to worry that anything's going to run out and they'll just be, you know, you want a can of Coke, it's right there. Um, and uh, so you're dancing and then you happen to see the can of Coke on the mantle, so you drink it. If it wasn't there, you wouldn't have noticed that it wasn't. But it is there, so you may as well drink it because it's not a big deal that it is there. It's not a, um, and the sign of bount of the bountifulness, the abundance, you could say, of heaven, the wealth of God, um, in the first three lines of this poem, 
is something like, yeah, glass of blessings, sure, in heaven. Um, it's just something that you might notice was on the table with you. Um, and then think, oh, good, this is easy enough. Um, I can just finish, I can just pour some of this on and that'll be good. Um, or if you cook, it can be something like that. That is, you're, you know, you're making the eggs and then you notice that there's some, um, um, I don't know, Aleppo pepper um, on the counter next to you and you think, eh, why not? Um, I mean, do, do you feel, I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating, but do you feel that there's that kind of casualness here? One of the amazing things about Herbert, well, we may have to do a little bit of this just to try and get his tone. Um, keep your finger on that page and look at the poem called um, Church Monuments, which is on page 311. Um, This was a poem, remember I told you how much uh, Coleridge and Wordsworth and Dryden hated Dunn. Um, this poem, Church Monuments, was a poem that, was re that they thought was really pretty amazing. Um, and it was highly influential for some of Coleridge's greatest poetry, the poetry called Conversation Poems. Um, it was also, Herbert in general was, um, Herbert and Shakespeare are probably the two most important poets for Emily Dickinson. Um, people that you wouldn't think of as um, utterly um, captivated by Herbert nevertheless are. But in any, anyhow, this poem, Church Monuments, is a poem that both Coleridge and Wordsworth um, were, were really thought, thought um, was, was astonishing. Um, and all I want to draw your attention to, we, we won't go through it carefully now, but what I want to draw your attention to is just the... the conversational style of this poem. This, you would never guess from the tone of this poem that it was 17th century. Um, the tone of this poem is so modern, um, so relaxed in its diction, um, so, so like conversation, um, that it's amazing to think of this as almost 400 years old. Um, and so what you should know are church monuments are gravestones in a church. Um, people used to get buried in churchyards rather than in cemeteries. And so when you went to church, you know, there's hallowed ground um, next to the church, and that's the churchyard. And, um, and churchyards, one of the reasons that they're so kind of spooky and also so beautiful is that there are graves there for hundreds and hundreds of years. They just kind of pile up. Um, and the stones that mark the graves get eroded um, by wind and rain. And, um, and that it's that sense of picturesqueness that you get in um, churchyards is partly um, because of that erosion. So that's the picture you should have, that it's a kind of picturesque um, place where the dead are buried. So it's both a place of peace and... Um, beauty, but also a place that that um, conduces to meditativeness. Um, and what Herbert is doing is is um, he's in a meditative mood. So he says, "While that my soul repairs to her devotion, I here I entomb my flesh." So here in this churchyard, I entomb my flesh um, while I'm praying. Um, I sit here, I think about this, while that my soul repairs to her devotion, here I entomb my flesh, that it be times may take acquaintance of this heap of dust, dust to which the blast 
of death's incessant motion fed with the exhalations of our crimes drives all at last. Therefore, I gladly trust my body to this school that it may learn to spell his elements and find his birth written in dusty heraldry and lines, which dissolution sure doth best discern, comparing dust with dust and earth with earth. These laugh at jet and marble put for signs to sever the good fellowship of dust and spoil the meeting. What shall point out them when they shall bow and kneel and fall down flat to kiss those heaps which now they have in trust. Dear flesh, while I do pray, learn here thy stem and true descent, that when thou shalt grow fat and wanton in thy cravings, thou mayest know that flesh is but the glass which holds the dust that measures all our time, which also shall be crumbled into dust. Mark here below, how tame these ashes are, how free from lust, that thou mayst fit thyself against thy fall. Um, so there's one um, real surprise. A lot of people, the first time they read this, misread one line. What line do you think that would be? I don't know. That's such a weird question. Um, but most people, when they read it the first time, read it as flesh is but grass which is um, a standard biblical um, reminder. All flesh is grass. Um, why? Because we die. And um, as Whitman says in Song of Myself, a child asked me, what is grass? How could I answer that child, he says. But his, and it, then he gives a list of definitions, beautiful definitions. The flag of his disposition is one of them. But finally he says, and lastly, I think it is the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Um, that's what grass is. Um, and that's what Jesus means when he says that all flesh is grass also. But for Herbert, and I hope you feel the conversational tone of, of that poem, just, um, therefore I get, gladly trust my body to this school that, may, that it may learn to spell his elements. Um, these laugh at jet and marble put for signs to sever the good fellowship of dust and spoil the meeting. So, but if, if it's all glass, flesh is but the glass which holds the dust. Um, doesn't that seem a more artificial image than flesh is but grass, which is, I think, it's, well, it certainly rhymes with, and I think it's meant to rhyme with. Um, how is flesh glass? What's the image there? Yeah. An hourglass. Okay, so it's the so the dust which it holds is the dust which measures out our time, as in an hourglass. And what What's what is the glass of an hourglass made of? What is glass made of? Sand. Sand. And so um, the glass is also dust. He says, which also shall be crumbled unto dust. So what will happen to the glass, which holds the dust, eventually? It'll also turn to dust, partly because it'll be eroded by the sand that's flowing through it. Um, when you have an hourglass, hourglasses notoriously um, go faster, speed up, get fast over the years, because all the dust that's flowing through the waste is also eroding 
um, the glass that's, suppo that's um, supposed to measure it. Um, so that erosion um, turns the glass back into what it was created out of, created out of dust, and unto dust it will return. So the very fact that he uses the word glass, which feels sort of rigid and brittle and wrong, turns out to be right, because even though it's rigid and brittle, it too is going to erode into dust. It feels like the opposite of dust. What holds the dust but is the opposite of it, but it also erodes into dust. At any rate, what I want, the reason I brought that poem up is that, it, that it's another poem that gives you a little bit of a sense of Herbert's amazingly conversational style. Um, the Collar, which is the poem before the pulley on page 330, um, also begins, just suddenly, I struck the board and cried, no more, I will abroad. Um, just an exposition of anger, of sudden anger, sudden glory, as Hobbes defines anger. So here we have, um, back to the pulley, when God had first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by. You know, that's what happened to be there. So if you, if you recognize the casualness of that tone, you'll recognize the casualness of the fact that the glass of blessings just happens to be there. Let us, because he had a glass of blessings standing by, that's the way the reasons, the chain of reasons go, let us, said he, pour on him all we can that is all the blessings we can, let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. Um, why let us rather than let me? Yeah. Is it the, the three and one again? Okay, so that's one um, possibility that it's the Trinity. Um, does anyone know what's being echoed in the Bible here? We're the first time God says, let us, in the Bible? Well, Elohim is always plural, but usually with a singular verb. Um, but there is, very early on, there's a place where um, it gets a plural verb in the first person. So in the Geneva and the King James Bible, it's translated as, let us, not let me, but let us, no one remembers? Make man in our own image. So that's the line in Genesis. And it's one of, I think, only two places in Genesis where um, the word for God in Genesis is a plural word, um, but always gets a singular verb, except in two places. And that's one of them. Um, so let us make man in our own image. Um, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. <laughs> Male and female created he them. Do you, does this um, ring a bell for people, that moment in Genesis? Um, that's the first story of the creation of, um, of hum humanity, that God made humans in his own image, male and female. We then get a second story about what the Lord did, which is to create Adam and then to take a rib out of his side. Um, to create Eve. Um, and the fact that those two stories aren't quite the same um, leads to very interesting explanation. Um, but the um, place, what Herbert is thinking of, is that um, striking and surprising place 
where God says, let us make man in our own image. Um, why do you think he says that, either in Herbert or in the Bible? Why the plural? Why let us? Guess. Yes, Nick. I, I don't know, but it makes me think of the royal we. Uh-huh. And just when there's a king in power, he refers to himself as we and us. And it's yeah. just a position. Of, it's just an ex, it accents his power. Exactly. Um, probably, um, although I've never confirmed this, but probably it's actually an echo of the let us. In other words, the royal we is, is a sign of the divine right of kings, which is um, the um, uh, legitimacy of using a plural pronoun to refer to yourself because you're more important than anything singular. Um, so um, in the royal we, for example, um, I don't know about the French. I don't think this is what I'm about to say is true in French, but it's certainly true in English. Um, there are pronouns like ourself, not ourselves, but ourself. So um, um, herein is no one but ourself. Um, so it's a plural um, pronoun, but anything it modifies is singular, which, which tells you that it's the single king. Um, and I think that's also, that's also in some sense coming out of the way the plural word for God in um, uh, the five books of Moses um, takes a singular, tends to take singular verbs. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's got something like the feel of the royal we. Um, what does it do, um, Gabby, to your sense of abundance in heaven? the plural rather than the singular. What kind of place is heaven if you have God is there and he says, let us... Oh, is it... Well, the angels came before humans. Yeah, right. So, but he wouldn't be referring back... Like, I would believe more that it would be the royal we because I don't think he would really confer with the angels about making humans. I think he just made them. Um, okay. Um, would this be quite conferring... What if you don't see it quite as conferring? Um, yeah. Oh, I mean, there's no need to use the royal we unless you're putting yourself above someone else. So the angels are there. That's why he's using royal we to be like, I'm better than you. Um, but not quite so obnoxiously. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say obnoxiously. <laughs> but um, you're the classicist. It's not unlike Zeus in the Iliad. That is, there's, there are a group of um, supernatural, superhuman, divine figures and one of them is, is um, the person, is their leader. Um, I think that's the feel of it. So um, a word that gives you that sense is the word can. That is, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Um, not, why, why is that a surprising thing for God to say? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, Barbara. Because you would think that all-powerful, but can suggest a limited amount of what you can give. Yeah. So there's something a little bit casual about that also. It's like, here's this glass of blessings. Okay, let me pour, let us. What do you say we pour on him all we can out of this glass of blessing? There's a kind of what do you say. Um, 
and kind of the kind of what what do you say when the person who's saying what do you say is the person who gets to decide what will happen. But still, um, I think the feeling that you get here is one of so heaven is a place where super abundant, lots of lots of just glasses of blessing everywhere, um, and also well populated with um, um, with angels. Um, with other gods, if you don't know that this is a Christian poem uh, or a monotheistic, a relatively monotheistic poem, um, but a place of abundance and company. Let's put it that way. So here we have an interesting play of pronouns. Let us said he. So God is singular in the narrative. Let us said he. Not let us said they, not when the BBC first broadcast Doctor Who, let us, they said, have an actor who, whatever. Um, you would sometimes, especially in British English, have a um, collective noun take a plural pronoun and take plural verbs. You know how, how that goes in, in England. The government say that they shall that they will not allow um, such an eventuality to occur, um, and we would always we in America would always say the government says, but um, the the um, English way, which is Herbert's way, um, will use government as a collective noun that takes a plural verb, um, and you could sort of see that as as getting you to the royal we and also getting you, or coming from the royal we, um, in the same ballpark as the royal we. Um, and you could also see it um, as potentially something that um, would allow the pronoun, at least he, because um, what it, I think the BBC is an it, even though it takes a female I mean, it's female, a um, plural verb. Um, I think it's a singular pronoun. Um, the BBC say that they will not listen to the government's demands. No, I think it's they. I'm wrong. At any rate, um, it's still striking that we have one pronoun, let us, and then another pronoun, said he right after that. It's not that striking if you take the, the us to be lots of people in heaven. Let us, said he, pour on him all we can. But if there are lots of people in heaven, then notice there's another, in the very same line, another juxtaposition of what? Us, he, we and, yeah, and him. Yeah, um, this is what's called a chiasmatic scheme, which is um, when you have a line that has the form A, B, B, A. Um, that's a standard rhetorical way of doing things. Um, and that's called chiasmus after the Greek letter chi, which sort of looks like um, an olive, and which is um, um, a crossing a letter in which, in which um, uh, there's a crossover. So the crossover in the line is us, he, him, we. That is first person plural, third person masculine singular, third person masculine singular, 
first person plural. Um, so that's not an accident. Um, that's, that has an effect. I don't think that Herbert is saying, notice the pattern and then you'll see the effect. Um, patterns have effects when you don't notice them. Um, but if you do notice them, we can, we can discuss what the effect is. Um, so let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Um, heaven is a place with lots of beings. Um, what about Earth? Yeah. Not yet. Um, the Bible says, male, um, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Herbert could easily have done this as, when God had first made man, having glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour on them all we can. And we'd have no trouble understanding that the them was humans, pluralized. Um, but it's him. So what does that, what contrast does that sort of bring out between heaven and earth? A reasonable contrast, a good one, one that makes perfect sense. But what contrast does it bring out? He's poor and alone. Yeah, he's alone. Um, probably poor, we'll get to that. But certainly alone. Um, heaven is a place with lots of people, let's call them people, and earth is a place with just one or maybe one or two. So he says, God says, they say, let's give this poor, lonely figure all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So strength, so here are the blessings in the glass. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay. What does made a stay mean? Yeah. Um, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. So he's got this glass of blessings. He pours a few out. And then, whoops, almost out. What's left? What blessing is left? Rest. Rest, yeah. Um, that's all, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. Um, so how much treasure was that, was there? I mean, do you get the sense that, wow, what an amazing amount of treasure he must have poured onto humans because um, it's God's treasure, all his treasure, all that treasure? Or do you get the sense of, well, he had some stuff, but he ran out really quickly? Yeah. No. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, at least to me, it feels like he had a lot. Uh huh. And because I mean, they only list a couple, but then he says, and then as if it had continued after the list yeah. that they gave. Yeah. And all and and rest is such a. It's not something that you would think of as a blessing, or yeah. at least maybe contemporarily you wouldn't think of it as a blessing. So the fact that only rest is left, like there's not no other like. I don't want to say real blessing, but no other big blessing is left. Right. That only a little bit of rest is left. Uh huh. It, it, you, it implies that there was a lot that he gave away. Can you add something? What do you think's missing? Just one of the things that um, get that would appear in the and so on part of this. 
Love. Um, okay. The ability to love. Okay, good, nice. Um, it may turn out that that's what rest is, but um, good. It's not that easy, though. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good foursome there. Beauty, wisdom, honor, pleasure. Um, yeah, the ability to love. Um, hard to think of many more. Um, Gabriel, was your hand? Sorry? I said or hope. Hope. Yeah, Herbert's got a good poem on hope, which is not in this book. Um, but but it's uh, he and hope exchange gifts. Um, he gives hope. Um, forget what he gives hope. It doesn't matter so much, but he gives hope something. I gave hope my, I don't think it's in here. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's not, but I'm going to do due diligence. Um, no, I'll, I may bring it in. There are a couple of poems I want to bring in on Wednesday. Um, he gave hope. He gives hope some gift, and then he says, "But hope an optic sent." So he gives hope some nice gift, and hope sends him back a telescope. Um, and then he sends hope something else, and hope sends him a few green leaves. Um, and he sends Hope a third thing, um, and Hope uh, sends him almost nothing back, and then he ends the poem, Ah, loiterer! Such a great vocative. Ah, loiterer. Loiterer. That's the kind of thing Dickens, Dickinson loved in, um, in Herbert. Ah, loiterer. I'll no more, no more I'll bring... Um, oh, what was it? No, I'll no more, no more I'll bring. That's it. I'll loiter, I'll no more, no more I'll bring. I did expect a ring. So he wanted Hope to send him a ring, but Hope doesn't. Um, why? Because Hope is um, at the bottom of what other glass? What's the, where is hope the only thing left in a container? Oh, is it Pandora's box? Yeah. Yeah. So Pandora's box, what's in Pandora's box? What's in a box? What, why is she not supposed to open it? What's in that box? Is the horrors of the world. Yeah, everything bad in the world is in that box. And it's all let out except for one thing. What's that? Hope. So what, what does that mean about hope? It's the last thing to go. It's the last thing to go, but what does it mean about hope? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's kind of a bad thing. It's a bad thing. It's in the box of bad things. Here is a box of bad things, including hope. That also is a bad thing in this mythological story or in this fable. Um, and we never lose hope. Um, it's always, it always stays in the box, so the, so the moral is you never lose hope. Um, but it's ambiguous whether it's a good thing or not that you never lose hope. Um, so Herbert is certainly thinking of Pandora's box here, where rest is in um, something like the position of hope, except this is a glass of blessings, not a glass of curses. So um, when almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. What do you think of the word perceiving? What word in the first stanza would you um, connect that to? Standing. 
Okay, yeah. Or or having a glass of blessings, having or standing. That is, there's that um, gerundival, it happens to be, this happens to be happening um, in the course of the narrative that I'm telling. God creates man and having a glass of blessings, standing by. When almost all was that God made us stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. Um, what else might it uh, go back to in the first? Is there anything else you'd want to connect it to? Yeah. Having? Yeah. Only because perceiving, and maybe that's the way that we know it, as of it, know of it now, is to me implies more that he knew, more than he saw. Uh -huh. like, so he, it was something that, like, a knowledge that he had versus, like, also that having, like, he just happened to have, he just happened to know yeah. that the, what would be at the very bottom of this glass was always going to be rest. Yeah, no, that's right. Perceiving is where we get our word perception. That is, um, you become aware of something. To perceive something as, ah, I perceive that, um, that I have no money to lend you. It's, um, it's coming to awareness rather than, um, um, having, rather than omniscient knowledge. That would be the surprising thing about that word, is that this is, doesn't sound like an omniscient god, um, at least the way the story is being told. Um, it's a little bit like the god in Genesis not knowing where Adam and Eve are. Um, taking a walk in the cool of the day and not perceiving Adam and Eve and saying, where art thou? Um, so um, it might go back to the word can as well in the first stanza. That is, this God is, you know, he's, he's, uh, he sees what's going on and um, he does, he responds to what he sees. But there's something responsive about that. Let, let us pour on him all we can. Here's a glass of blessings. Oh, look, lo, a glass of blessings. Let's see what we can do with this. Pour on all we can. Let's see how much that is. Oh, wait, down to just that last blessing. Better stop. Um, this is very much, I mean, he's, he's a likable god, but he's not um, the uh, vengeance is mine, I shall repay saith the Lord, scary God of the Old Testament or the scary God of the New Testament. Um, he's much closer to um, a Greek God, much close, th this depiction of God so far is much closer to a depiction of a God from classical antiquity. Um, you know, charming, a little schnooky, um, likes chicken salad a little too much. Um, but not, um, not the hidden god of the um, monotheistic religions. For if I should, said he, so what does a said he go back to in the first stanza? Easy, said he, good. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, what's, um, what's the surprising difference from the first stanza? Yeah. I mean, here it's more like it's questioning. It's more of like a unsure nature than before. Before it was just like, okay, let's pour some of these blessings on. Now it's like, what do I do with this last one? Right. Good. And um, how does that get marked in the diction? For if I. Go on. For if I should. No, 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 no. I don't mean keep. I don't mean next word. Oh, you mean I mean, what about for if I? Um, for if I implies like. 
it, you can kind of drop it and just the way we would say it now would just be like if I do this. Yeah. Or like because. All right. So the, yeah. This. So the four is the four is he's explaining his reasoning. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like Alice in the first paragraph of Alice in Wonderland, saying, "And what is the point?" said Alice of a book without pictures or conversations, where the and is Alice picking up from the narrative. Alice was beginning to grow very sleepy. Um, her sister was reading a book without pictures or conversations. That's the narrator telling us. And then Alice's first thought in Alice in Wonderland is, and what is the point, said Alice, of a book without pictures of co or conversations. So um, she's picking up from the situation and responding to it. OK, so for if I is like perceiving, is like can. It's just. Herbert is so good with these little conversational words at getting his tone across. So the word for is surprising. What's the next surprising word, given what we've read in the first stanza? Yael. I found creature kind of odd, because in the first stanza he calls him a man. Creature actually wouldn't have been odd in the 17th century. Creature just means something created. So creature is the opposite of creator. Um, the creator creates a creature, and it's creature is, is um, uh, what, what it comes from. So now we think of creatures as, um, partly because of all creatures great and small, we think of creatures as critters. Um, but that's not the 17th century meaning. It means all created things. Um, yeah? Um, I is surprising compared to the us of the first stanza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not if we should, which is maybe how you would correct it if you were grading this for FWS. <laughs> Um, but you'd be wrong um, if I should. Uh, emotionally, affectively, where is that coming from? What is, what is it doing to God's, um, to the pronomial perspective we take on God? Yeah. When he referred to himself in the week, he seemed very powerful and very sure of himself. And when he then reverts back to an I, it makes it seem like either this is a personal thought with himself that he's not sharing to the with the angels or not like announcing or he's also not sure. Like yeah. he has become less important by switching from like a royal we to an I. Yeah, good. So one thing that I think you can see here, I mean Herbert is one of the poets that if you're studying poetic technique, that is if you yourself are a poet. Um, and you were reading the great poets, partly to learn technique. Um, you know the way you go, the way you copy old masters in museums um, in order to learn how to paint. Um, all the great painters copied, all but the first great painters copied um, earlier great painters. Um, lots of we know what lots of lost paintings look like because um, other great painters did exact copies in in those to learn. Um, copying paintings is how you learn how to paint. Um, copying poetic technique is how you learn how to communicate in poetry. And um, the kinds of masters in poetry who are who people who study in order to learn to write. It's not I mean you don't do that that much um, except for contemporary poetry in workshops, but um, in very advanced workshops, you would. Um, Herbert is way up there on the list of people that you can learn technique from. 
Um, Sydney also, by the way. Um, Sydney and Herbert are just so intensely um, uh, technically gifted that learning their technique, um, learning how that technique works, is um, just an incredibly good thing to pick up. So notice, the, so notice this part of Herbert's technique here, which is that um, there's a play of singular and plural in this poem. And that play of singular and plural very quickly takes on affective coloring. So what we saw in the first stanza is that plural means wealth. Unsurprisingly, plural means wealth. Lots, that plural, the plural of lots of stuff. So, when God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, not a glass of blessing, but a glass of blessings, lots of them, let us, lots of people up here, said he, pour on him, not so much down there, all we, lots of us up here, can. Let the world's riches, lots of riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So here are those riches. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone, and now the singular is, the plural is over, and the singular is taking over, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he. And again, what Herbert, you know, you're, you're, that's still in your short-term memory, in your working memory. Let us, said he. For if I should, said he. It has to be in your working memory um, because it's, it's still the same pronoun. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel, singular, also on my creature, singular. He, singular, would adore my gifts, plural. He'd have them all. All that wealth would be his. Would adore my gifts instead of me, singular, and rest in nature, not the god of nature. So both should losers be. Now notice both. Both, who are the both? Yeah, so both is what's called a dual, um, which there are very few of in English, but there's some. Um, Yale, do you know what a dual is in Greek? No. So in Greek and in some other languages, there are actually three. We, we talk about singular and plural. Um, but sometimes you have um, languages whose, which get a different verb if you're talking about two things. Um, and Greek has a dual form that is a verb and also some noun endings that go with a pair of things rather than with um, more than two. So it's one, two, or many is how the grammar is structured, and dual is two. Um, I think Old English or maybe um, Old High Germanic um, had, had many more duals, but duals survive in modern English in the word both, which always means two. Um, in either or or in each other. Um, each other really should only be used for two people or in a comparative, or sorry, in the pronoun between rather than among. Something occurs between two people but among um, three or more. That's actually, there, there are many, many exceptions to that rule, but the ghost of the rule is um, 
a sense, a linguistic sense, a sense that people with a capacity for language um, have of thinking in terms of two. Um, we can think in terms of single things, as grammar tells us. We can think in terms of plural things, as grammar tells us. Um, but we can also think in terms of dual things, as um, grammar um, has traces of being able to tell us when you use a word like both. So both means two. Um, that's partly the, yeah, both means two. So who, who would losers be? Who are those two? So both should losers be. Man and God, yeah. Um, I think, I'm not positive about this, but I think that the, um, you, the plural N in English, which is very rare, um, but not unheard of. Can you think of any plural words ending with N? Children. Children, yeah. Um, oxen, brethren. brethren um, no longer, but it still counts for Scrabble, is I-N, E-Y-E-N, um, which means eyes. Um, that, I think that um, might be partly a dual um, um, rather than a plural ending. That is, two oxen um, would be the, the default number of oxen. Uh, two children and maybe two brethren would be the default number of children and brethren. I'm not positive about that, but I think N might be a trace of a dual um, plural. Um, so, yeah, I, ju I, do, I just don't know. Um, but there two now, by the time we get to the end of stanza three, there are essentially only two beings left. In stanza one, heaven was full of beings. In stanza three, we're down to two. Again, it would be very different, although quite doable, for Herbert to have God say, for if we should, said he, bestow this jewel also on our creature or on my creature, he would endure our gifts instead of us um, and rest in nature, not the God of nature. So all should losers be, or so we should losers be. That would be more in keeping with the first stanza. But what the poem is describing is a rapid using up of all this wealth. He pours the glass of blessings until there's almost nothing left onto man. And now it's also as though almost, there's almost no one left, just God and man. That's it. That, high, that, that, that highly populated, um, gregarious, socially rich world of the first stanza has now become just two beings in the universe, God and man. And both should losers be. How can God be a loser? Well, because the one person he could spend time with, namely man, would no longer care about him. It's not only that man would be a loser, it's that God would be a loser. That's a striking thing to say, too. So both should losers be. Yet, let him keep the rest, he says, but keep them with repining restlessness. What's the antecedent to them? Men. Sorry? Men. You mean no, but keep, yeah. The gifts. Yeah, the gifts. Um, the rest, the rest of the gifts. Yet, let him keep the rest, 
but keep them with repining restlessness. Again, I think it's striking that, that um, them means the gifts, but it technically refers back to the word the rest. And we would expect, therefore, the pronoun to be it. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep it with repining restlessness would make slightly more grammatical sense. And then we have to think for a second and say, oh, yeah, the rest, that's plural. Um, it's something like re the word rest is short for the rest of our gifts, my gifts. But um, now the plural is, that's just the rest. That's where the plural went into the rest. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. So weariness, a desire for some safe harbor, toss there. What does the word toss put you in mind of? Let's see. Yeah, do people f feel that it's a, a, a marine word there? Mm -hmm. Like being tempest-tossed, um, the, the restlessness of the sea. Um, if goodness lead him not yet, weariness may toss him to my breast. But if you use the word breast near the word sea, what are you thinking of? I think you're thinking of the sea itself, the breast of the sea. Um, I think that's what you're thinking of, are you? Um, that might be affected by Yeats, who talks about um, the wide breast of the dim sea. So maybe that's um, projecting too much into it. Might be safe harbor. Yeah. Um, but it's almost as, I think what it is is that um, it's safe harbor, um, but safe harbor um, in the person who protects you and comforts you in your restlessness. I think it's a little bit undoes the difference between um, the harbor and the sea. Um, the sea is a restless and weary place unless its restlessness and weariness become what um, become the breast of God, and then it's okay. What about the word breast? Um, I think it rather feminizes God. Not entirely, and maybe not intentionally. Um, but the very male, lackadaisical, do-what-we-want, Zeus-like god of the first stanza um, becomes a comforting god in a way that the word breast is partly contributing to here. Um, in the Bible, men hold those they're comforting to their breast all the time. But I think that um, it's still a sort of feminized gesture, a gesture of a maternal gesture. Um, and that's part of the beauty of this as well. Um, did you want to say something? Uh huh. Yeah. It's like such a vulnerable position, but I don't. I don't think I've seen women do that. Well, they take children. Like with children, yeah. Yeah. But 
Well, but what if, um, if, if it maternalizes God, let's say, then what it does is it, is it um, turns man into a child. In other words, I, I, I think I agree with you, but the effect of that would be to the extent that we do feel, which maybe you don't, but to the extent that we do feel um, a kind of um, maternalization here, um, what, is, what that goes with is the idea that um, humans need that because they're childlike, because we're childlike um, with respect to God. Um, you know, I don't, I don't insist on that. What, what does seem amazing about this is um, the sense of we'd both be losers and um, we'd both be tossing. That is, it's not only humans who would be restless, but to the extent that um, the breast does have that maritime or marine feeling or people talk about tossing uh, um, your breast tossing as a, as a as an image of crying. Um, that's a standard image of crying, um, is breast heaving or breast breast tossing. Um, so they're both sad, but that sadness gives them um, something that they can um, wish for in the future, which is comfort. Uh, one of the great lines in the gospel, I, uh, Herbert is not thinking about this, I don't think. He might actually be because he thinks about these things all the time. One of the great lines in um, the gospel uh, according to John um, is Jesus says, in a little while I'll be leaving you. Um, and his disciples say, why? Um, that's terrible. And he says, and he's predicting his betrayal and so on, and he says, um, it is meat that I should leave you, for if I do, did not leave you, how could the comforter come and comfort you? And then he explains that the comforter is the Holy Spirit. But essentially he says, it's good that I leave, because that makes it possible for the comforter to come, to comfort you for the fact that I've left. And that idea that being comforted for a loss is deeper than having the thing to begin with, I think is what's going on here as well. That what God can do, um, which is what Herbert wants, which is so, so powerful, is to comfort. And that's what this God is finally offering by keeping back his last blessing. By giving us restlessness instead. Yeah. I don't get where the pulley comes in. <laughs> um, it's, I think you should think of a well. So it's like a bucket tossing on a well of, um, also. And um, that because humans aren't completely full of the thing that would. Um, let them be full on earth, um, they get pulled up, but the bu bucket is tossing also as it's being pulled up. Um, do you have a question? No, no. no. <laughs> um, look at the collar, the poem before it. Uh, do we have time for 
two more poems, of course not. But um, just to get the tone of this, and then there's one other poem I do want to look at, the poem called Redemption. Um, but the caller here, what did they tell you? Um, yeah. Um, um, the footnote, um, Fowler's footnote here gives you... Um, the very complex pun in the word collar. Herbert is a priest. He's wearing a clerical collar. So what he is partly feeling choleric, choleric about, angry about, what he's in collar about. Remember we talked about the humors? Um, that's one of them. What he's angry about is giving his life up to a vocation that does nothing for him. God seems absent from him, and he's really angry about it. Um, and he feels like he's being choked by it because it's um, a collar around his neck, um, like a dog's collar. So he's angry, and I struck the board and cried. That is, he's sitting at a table, and he just says, no, that's it. I struck the board and cried. This same board is room and board. That is, um, it's a table that you would sit at. I struck the board and cried, no more. I will abroad, that is, I'm going away from here. I'm going out um, to lead a new life. What? Shall I ever sigh and pine? My life and line, my lines and life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. I can go anywhere. Am I just going to be doing this? Shall I be still in suit? Am I just going to keep begging and begging to God instead of doing something? Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood? It's the only thing I can, I can harvest, a thorn which bleeds me, and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it, no flowers, no garlands gay? All blasted, all wasted? So... Do I really have to lead this life of deprivation where nothing comes to me, where God ignores me, where I pray and pray and pray but no hearing? Is that the way I'm supposed to live? No, he's sick of it. Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Have a good time now. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands. Amazing image, a rope of sands. You think you're tied down, but it's just made of sand. It's not made of straw even, easy to break. It's not even a rope, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there. Death's head there would be a memento mori, um, a fear of death. Tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. So he's decided he's just done. He is so done with this, with giving up his life to a god who doesn't answer absolutely sick of it. But as, and just notice how good this is at sputtering anger, at a description of what sputtering anger is like. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methoughts I heard one calling child. And I replied, my lord.
And so there's that sudden volta, that sudden turn at the very end. And um, notice that what's psychologically deep about this, you know, if you just say, oh, well, that's lucky that someone called child, um, then it would, would not be a good poem. But what's psychologically deep about this is that he thought he heard someone calling child. He became aware of his own childishness. That, that is, that this kind of sputtering rage that he has, he becomes aware of as childishness. And that turns out to be a good thing. Because if he's so angry, it's because he is a child. Because he's just having a, a little kid's temper tantrum. And so he's not this um, um, sigh-blown, aged person that he thinks of himself as. He's still a child. And when he sees that in himself, that can make him think, no, I do need God as my parent. I do want to say, my Lord. So what's really amazing about Herbert, we did that one too quickly, but what's really amazing about Herbert but we have a minute for one more, the poem called Redemption. Um, what's really amazing about <coughs> Herbert, um, that's page 305, is the extent to which, even though he's talking about theological and um, religious experience, um, he's really psychologizing it. And all his thought about this is thought about his own psychology and human psychology in general. So Redemption, a sonnet, and um, one we'll talk more about on Wednesday, but just have it in your head. Um, the reference here is to the Old Testament being canceled by the New. Um, the New Lease is the New Testament, which cancels all the laws of the Old Testament. So he tells us, or the speaker tells us, that he was a tenant long to a rich lord, but not thriving. So having been tenant long to a rich lord, not thriving, I resolve it to be bold and make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. In heaven at his manor I him sought. They told me there that he was lately gone about some land which he had dearly bought long since on earth to take possession or possession. I straight returned, and knowing his great birth, sought him accordingly in great resorts, in cities, theaters, gardens, parks, and courts. At length I heard a ragged noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. There I him espied, who straight your suit is granted, said, and died. So that's um, essentially the redemption in a sonnet, um, but we'll unpack it a little bit on Wednesday.